It doesn't have boiling flasks or people in white coats, but a lot happens in the Procurement Innovation Lab operated by the Homeland Security Department. For an update on the pill, as they call it, we turn to its new director, Catherine Crompton. Ms. Crompton, good to have you with us. Hello. Thank you for having me. This goes back to 2015, so this is kind of one of the more mature labs of its type in the government, I guess. Fair to say? Yes, fair to say. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think it was the first lab, which now has generated additional labs and other organizations, which is super exciting. And in your years of procurement, do you have a lot of digi badges? <laughs> actually, fun story, or maybe not so fun, is I actually come from the DOD. So 25 plus years in the DOD, and I just started my DHS career here in February. So I am really catching up to the team on digi badges, and I have a wonderful team that when I step foot in the door says, you will get them. So that, and I, I think I'm at level two. So I'm not at level three yet. I believe I just hit my level two. And we should, I guess, tell the listeners what a digi badge is. I, I thought it was kind of cute when I saw it on the, mm-hmm. uh, on the website. So what a digi badge is, it's kind of like a badge of honor. And uh, I'm going to mess up the terminology of what they use, but it's pretty much crawl, walk, run that concept and basically the first digi badge is you you're, you're walking you're starting your journey and there are certain things you have to go through like attending a boot camp and i believe watching a webinar it's it's very very small those first steps of what you have to do and then you walk so you're going to add the next level you're going to maybe start coaching where you're going to get that you're getting those skills and those techniques that really help you be an innovator in the procurement space. And then level three is like the master digi badge where you've coached multiple projects and you've done some other things. So it's really a badge of honor. Recently this year, we started getting, it used to be internal to DHS, and now we are actually giving it to external agencies or participants who come in and participate so that they can put it on their on their email and display it. And it's, it's fun to see when people on LinkedIn are like, I got my digi badge or, or it comes across as an email. It's just super exciting. All right. Now the pill, the procurement innovation lab then really is a way of getting ideas from the components of DHS that have a procurement or acquisition challenge and the learning is then promulgated throughout the department? Yes and no. So that is a goal. And I think that's a goal that you're going to see in the coming years from the procurement lab is really gaining those ideas, what the innovators on the ground are doing, because that's really where these great ideas happen, great ideas that change the landscape of how we can procure. It's happening at that operational level. So creating mechanisms from those who are in the weeds, per se, of doing the work to help us better innovate. But yes, because the components are the ones who are bringing the projects to us, and we are learning the lessons from them, from the challenges that they have gone through, and that's helping us revive the innovations that we have. I think we're up to 19 or 20 now. My team will probably shake their head if I got that number wrong, but again, I'm still in learning mode because I am new to the pill, but that helps us revise what we are teaching. Then also, we are supporting the periodic table of acquisition innovations, which is gaining those innovations and those techniques across from the federal space. So we're helping to develop that. And that's where we're really capturing a lot of use cases and user stories of innovations and techniques that they have used to help streamline and break down some of those roadblocks and barriers in procurement. And of course, DHS operates under the federal acquisition regulation, like most mm-hmm. agencies do, not all, but most of them. Would it be fair to say that innovation means using the FAR and the provisions in the FAR, which are quite flexible if you know them all, 
to right. to get things done, perhaps just to exercise uh, muscles people have never used or pull some tools out of that toolbox they weren't even sure they had, but mm-hmm. th- that can really get a job done. Yes, that it, it does center around that because contrary to popular belief, the FAR is extremely flexible and clearly states, it clearly states in FAR Part 1 that we should be innovating. It says an exercising initiative government members of the acquisition team may assume if a specific strategy, policy, or procedure is in the best interest of the government, and if it's not addressed in the FAR nor prohibited by law, then pretty much do it. So a lot of people feel when the FAR is absent, then you're not allowed to do it, whereas it's truly if the FAR is absent, then you do have that leeway to do it. So there is a lot of flexibility, and it seems to be our own internal cultures, policies, procedures that we put on top of the FAR that makes it seem burdensome. We're speaking with Katie Crompton. She's director of the Procurement Innovation Lab at the Homeland Security Department. And every year there is a pill boot camp. What happens there? So we actually have multiple training opportunities. One is the boot camp, which is the original. That is the bread and butter of the pill. That's what we became known for was offering that training. And it's offered actually outside of DHS. It's offered across the federal sector and now even to industry. So that teaches our first set of techniques. And then now we have the pill boot camp next level, which then gives you some lessons learned from those techniques that you got taught in boot camp, but also provides additional techniques and innovations that you can use. And then our third offering is the coaching clinic. And that is for individuals who want to start to coach teams and do things like the pill and help mentor and support others to, to use innovations within their own organizations. So those, those are kind of the lanes of training that we offer. And it's very exciting that we are also offering that to industry, industry industry-only offerings where they can come in and kind of it takes away that curtain from government procurement so that they can understand what we are doing so they can better propose and so that they can um, do it more efficiently with less resources. Yes, the implication here is that industry needs to be a part of procurement innovation. Yes, they do. They are our partners in that. And so many times we tend to try to sit across from the aisle from each other. And one of the things that we actually do as part of our post-award interviews on every single project is we actually interview industry and get their feedback. What worked? What didn't work? What didn't you understand? How can we make this better? Because that really helps us develop strategies that eliminate those those roadblocks that industry finds it hard navigating in the federal space, especially for those small businesses or those new entrants coming into the federal workspace. And it looks like the innovative procurement techniques fall under four basic areas, lowering entry barriers, I presume, to industry, encouraging mm-hmm. competition, shortening times to award, and increasing successful outcomes. And you have a whole lot of different sub-techniques under those or actual ways to get those mm-hmm. done, such as group oral debriefings, for example, follow-on production authority clauses. They get pretty technical. All of the techniques that you're trying have those basic rubrics over them? Yes, they do have those basic rubrics over them. So one of the things and one of the very popular uh, techniques is confidence ratings. So we're very used to seeing acceptable, unacceptable, marginal, highly satisfactory, exceptional. Um, Those are kind of the the bread and butter of evaluations. So what we have found is using confidence ratings of, hey, I have confidence that you are going to be able to perform this or provide this product. 
versus going through this very detailed exceptional or unacceptable and providing that feedback and then using those confidence ratings then with an advisory down select so once we've established that we have confidence in your offering then we can provide a letter saying it's highly likely you will be competitive in this next stage or it's highly unlikely you will not be competitive and that gives industry an opportunity to decide if they want to continue to spend the resources or they don't want to continue to spend the resources and also provides enough feedback of how we evaluated them that then provides one better competition because so many times industry tells us i didn't have a chance so why did you keep me in in the pool so by giving them the choice that that's giving them the power of what they want to most of the time we find the industry appreciates that and when they have been provided that feedback they don't waste their resources because their resources are just as valuable as our resources so by by providing those techniques that increases our competitions and makes it easier for industry and then we're going to have a better chance of outcomes because then we are really being able to focus on those entities that really can provide that product or support that mission with a higher confidence than that traditional methodology. And your yearbook that is put out by the pill every year lists Mm -hmm. a number of projects, some from DHS components, some from other Mm -hmm. departments and other agencies, pill procurement projects, triple P's, I guess. (laughs) And give us just one or two examples of these projects that have used innovation and the results they got. Yeah, sure. No problem. So in our last yearbook, one of the stories I'd like to highlight, which I think is really relevant for this time of year, because it's the push to year end, you know, instead of the March to March, it's the push to September 30th. And so many times in the procurement world, we are given last minute requirements, whether fall down money, new things come up, like we got to get it done. And we're given very constrained timelines. So on page 16 of the yearbook is the NPS project. Now, granted, this was a simplified acquisition threshold project, but the techniques and how they approached it is completely relevant and valuable to any person with a year-end requirement. They used oral presentations, on-the-spot consensus, confidence ratings, and advisory down select to be able to do an award in 33 days. And and probably most people think, oh, $250,000 in 33 days? That should be normal. But it's very surprising how sometimes those $250,000 procurements take us a lot more time than (laughs) people would expect. So that's just a really great highlight of how they use those techniques in a time crunch to get it done. And I think that's very, very relevant considering where we are in this time of year. Another one is the one that we presented this year at the NCMA World Congress, which was the fusion procurement. And where that is, it's not consolidation, it's not bundling, but it's where you take multiple requirements and put them in a single solicitation that allows you to streamline your documentation, your reviews. It streamlines it for industry because it's one-stop shopping and they can propose on all, they can propose on one. And there's multiple awards that come out of that. So so it allows us to combine our resources, not only on the industry side, but the government side as well, to kind of break down those barriers and make it easier to propose. Those are two highlight projects that we have in the yearbook and that we have gone out and spoke to industry and government about. By the way, getting back to the project of the National Park Service that you mentioned, yes, it was not a giant procurement at a couple Mm -hmm. of hundred thousand dollars, but it was something that you can see could easily get hung up because it right. was to make interactive displays and presentations in a particular national park building mm-hmm. setting in one of the remote parks. And, you know, those things can run into all kinds of artistic, yeah. cultural, language, you name it, types of mm-hmm. roadblocks. So I think 
just to underscore the fact that they did get it done quickly using those techniques is important. And you yes. said 25 years in the Defense Department. What's it like mm-hmm. coming over to a place like DHS, which you know has law enforcement elements similar to mm-hmm. somewhat to some elements in DOD, but it must feel like a totally different lake. It, it is definitely a totally different lake. It's interesting from a mission perspective, because in the DOD, our support is in support of the warfighter. And I have two children who are currently serving in the military. So that so that's a very personal mission, right? And it's support the warfighter, make sure they're safe, make sure that they have the food, the resources, everything they need to be able to protect our country and serve abroad. Coming over to DHS, it's just as important of a mission, but it touches more of my day to day. So that's been the most humbling part of coming over to DHS is walking through an airport. I'm seeing TSA and the mission that they they support. Uh, Living now in the Washington, D.C. area, all the federal law enforcement and seeing how Fletzy touches that. Seeing how FEMA, when there are hurricanes, go out and touch the citizens day to day. Immigration, getting visas for people to visit our country. Every single one of these mission touches us day to day as a citizen. So it, it's it's very humbling and it makes it that much more important to support because if we're able to support these missions, it ties into the DOD mission because every single warfighter is a citizen of this country. So we are, in essence, still supporting them. Katie Crompton is director of the Procurement Innovation Lab at Homeland Security Department. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to that latest annual report. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really 
you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God 
even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And, and it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.